CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Wednesday, July 20th, 2022. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to read you a headline that's on the front page of my uh, bright one, home delivered as always. Uh, This is actually not what I'm going to be discussing with my distinguished guest, though I have a feeling we will probably go on many tangents, and this may be one. But this, this, this one, I'm really having, I already, uh, uh, early, on an earlier show, just riffed on it extensively. Uh, uh, then Lori Lifetome was comparing apples to oranges. Well, she didn't literally tell me, but uh, she said people who say what I say are comparing apples to oranges. Uh, so keep that in mind. You may, you know, may agree with Lori Lightfoot. So here's the headline in my beloved Bright One, home delivered as always. Thank you, Bright One. Uh, Lightfoot revved up to bring NASCAR to Chicago streets. Lightfoot revved up to bring NASCAR to Chicago streets. And then one of the most curious quirks of journalism <laughs> that um, it's really not relevant to anybody other than me uh, is that the Sun-Times, the newspaper the Sun-Times, saw fit to print the article related to this headline in the sports section. And I'm like, what is the logic governing that? It's an article about whether it's in the best interest of Chicago to have this NASCAR race on our lakefront, whether uh, Mayor Lori Life had given us transparency, was up front with it, this, that, all these like typical political issues. And it was like someone at the Sun-Times goes, oh, NASCAR, I'll put it in the sports section. And, you know, and it's like all these Bear fans are like, what is this? Huh? <laughs> Hey, Ben, you know, you get, there's a lot of public radio people running around in there now, so they probably think that sports. That is it. Oh, my God, my distinguished guest weighed in before he even introduced himself with the solution. It was some be easy. Pr- oh, sports. Oh, <laughs> NASCAR. Sports. <laughs> BZ. Man, BZ. Uh, it, their thing about sports is how ironic. They keep score. Oh, anyway. Not enough on PC. Uh, all right, without further ado. <laughs> no, already, real- already, I'm in <laughs> your efforts to get a job there. I can see 
I cr- my dear uh, day show producer, uh, <laughs> Dr. Dave, I ruined his chances long ago. Uh, all right. Without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself and then get down to business. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. I once was Ken Davis. Okay. Uh, that's an interesting introduction. Ken Davis needs no introduction. David Letterman. Uh, he's the guy. I forgot you have to do all this other stuff, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Give the rest of the stuff. I, I once was, um, uh, I, I worked at, uh, oh, I worked for WBEZ for many years, program director there, news director on the, on the air a lot. And uh, then I moved over to the city of Chicago. I worked for Mayor Richard M. Daly uh, in his press office and um, did some TV work for the city of Chicago. And I hosted uh, a world famous television show while called Chicago Newsroom, which was watched by scores of people over a period of 10 years. And uh, and then uh, along the way, I uh, uh, sort of got myself into being a landlord, and that's what I am now, a happy landlord. Yes, a happy landlord. So we're not going to be talking about rent control. Uh, we're not going to be asking uh, Ken to give uh, horror stories of tenants who've lost their mind. Uh, he's not going to find his inner Burt Nateris and Bernie uh, Stone and extol the rights of property owners, okay? He's going to hold back and all that stuff. And I'm not going to give advice on how to fix toilets and stuff. That's for WGN. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm with WBZ's attitude toward toilets. Toilets, fascinating. You need them to live, and yet you keep them away. We'll have a full discussion with this. BEZ. Oh, fascinating. Toilets. Stop it. I love toilets. Yeah, no, it's no I love you, BZ. You know I love you, BZ. Okay? Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, Ken Davis, a dear friend of mine, a dear friend of the show. Uh, and uh, he would have me on when he when he had his uh, public access show from time to time, like when the, the regular scheduled guest couldn't show up. Hey, Ben, hurry up! Um, and uh, so, uh, and kicked you off when the mayor wanted to do the show. Yeah, no, that was hilarious. <laughs> mayor, I got booted for Mayor Lightfoot, ladies and gentlemen. I think it was a sound decision. Actually, I agree wholeheartedly with that decision. Uh, but I always like talking to Ken, but there's a very particular reason why. And so we're a couple baby boomers. Uh, and for each of us, 1972. Here we go. How many people are now going to tune out of this podcast? <laughs> Two old guys talking about 1972. <laughs> but folks, trust me, there's relevance, okay? We will connect it to things happening in your life right now. 1972. So further back, a- we could talk about 1962 probably. So there, you know, but so this is this is midlife for us. Yes. And I, we could do a long conversation about the 1962 Illinois Senate rela- uh, <coughs> election between Everett Dirks and the incumbent uh, and Sidney Yates, a young challenger, then a young challenger from the city of Chicago. You and the impact Yates. that Ted, uh, Robert John Kennedy had when he, in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, flew Everett Dirks into the White House. Den- uh, Ken, that's a cry for help. That I <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Uh, so, all right. So this has to do, uh, with comments, um, I, um, I made on the show about a week or so ago, uh, and I wrote a piece for the reader on this subject. And, uh, I was reflecting, uh, about the decision by democratic, uh, strategists, including the ones here in Illinois and governor Pritzker, and they're doing it in Pennsylvania. It's like they just did it in Maryland. 
to spend money uh, with commercials uh, in Republican primaries that are at, at really attempts to get MAGA voters to vote for the most extreme candidates that the Republicans have. Uh, and the strategy uh, is <clears throat> the strategy is connected to the notion that the polls show that the the most extreme MAGA candidates uh, are the most beatable. So if you want the best chance of winning in November, you've got to uh, take your chances with people who come very close to fascism. And I I that makes me nervous and scared because I take serious uh, the threat. That MAGA represents. I just read Ken an article in Chicago Magazine by Mark Caro about this subject. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating article. I urge mm -hmm. everyone to read it uh, about the investigation by a University of Chicago professor into the makeup of the insurrectionists. Uh, and it turns out that a lot of these insurrectionists are just quote unquote normal, ordinary uh, American citizens who are not members of extremist groups, uh, but they've come to believe that violence uh, is necessary. Uh, to protect the incumbency of Donald Trump. Very scary stuff. So I take fat, the threat of fascism uh, very serious. Anyway, by chance, I happen to read uh, Rick Perlstein's, a passage from Rick Perlstein's classic, uh, Nixon Land, which came out years ago, which is a story of Richard Nixon. A, a law, uh, not a story, it's a book about Richard Nixon. Uh, and, and in there, by pure chance, I got to a section, uh, Ken, where they described... Uh, where uh, Rick Perlstein describes how Richard Nixon intervened in the Democratic primaries of 1972 uh, in the hopes of guaranteeing that George McGovern would be victorious uh, because the polls showed that McGovern was the easiest candidate to beat. And uh, last time it's, I agreed with Nixon, right? Yes. <laughs> Same side. We didn't know it, though. Uh, so I made those observations on the show, and that drew the following letter uh, from Ken Davis, which is I immediately reached out to him and said, we have to take the deep dive into this one. So I will now do I will not do my Ken Davis imitation as I read this letter. I will just read the letter. <clears throat> and Ken, you are really a good letter writer. I could just tell you that right now. Uh, so here we go. Uh, driving down Montrose at one mile per hour, my hands white on the wheel, should be wet, but whatever, uh, with traffic rage, listening to your discussion about Nixon choosing McGovern as his running mate, and it made me feel even more naive than I already did. I took two weeks off my job as producer of the all-night Sunday talk show Point Counterpoint on WLSAM so I could go to California, stay with a small group of other naive 20-something-year-olds at an equally naive household of Los Angeles in their mid-century mid ranch that was about to be demolished for the construction of a freeway and knocked on doors in Watts to convince people that George was our savior. That is a great sentence. We must have convinced some people because we won. A bunch of starry-eyed idealists hanging out on the beach that night, the taste of Cali primary victory in our mouths. It was probably the last time I actually thought it was all legit. We would convince this essentially good country that might was not right, that we spend too much money on war, and that the rule of law was all we really needed to guide us to harmony and progress. It never occurred to me that Nixon and Haldeman and their goons were watching the same election returns and celebrating just as hard as we were. We really thought 
they'd be devastated at the realization that their reign of corruption, warmongering, and racism was at an end. Wow. Great letter. (laughs) Many questions I have, but the first question, based on the first thing that popped in my mind when I read it, is let me get this straight. You were in Cali on the beach, 1972. Why the hell did you come back to Chicago? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did live here and I did have a couple of jobs here. uh, But you know what? There's actually a, a slightly smaller chapter two there because when I came back, I was so filled with this optimism that we were about to change the the direction of the world that I went out to DuPage County and signed up to work for McGovern in DuPage County. And I was working in places like Lombard. And you have never seen the kind of hostility. People would would open the door and I'm standing there, this little fresh kid with my Come Home America button on and a McGovern button. And they would just slam the door. They wouldn't say a word. They would just slam the door. And still, I thought, we're still going to win this. We're going to win them over. But, you know, not to be. Yeah, no, that is uh, naive. And I just want to let you know uh, that I have a parallel experience. I was not nearly as involved with my government's campaign as you were. I was still in high school uh, my senior year. But uh, I volunteered through the MICVA office or for the Uh, MICVA campaign, which was then in uh, Skokie. And they dispatched me and a friend of mine on election day uh, to Northbrook uh, to uh, make sure that the pluses had voted. And uh, so in those days, ladies and gentlemen, there were pluses and minuses. I don't know, like precinct captains, like a plus vote was somebody who said, yes, I'm going to vote for Mikva. Mm -hmm. uh, And and then minus was, uh, I am not going to vote for Mikva. Don't ever come to my Mm -hmm. door again. And so Ken, I went, we went to all the, by then they said, don't go to the minuses. Just go to the pluses because you don't care if the minuses yeah. vote it, right? Uh, and so we were there on behalf of uh, Big Fa and McGovern. And Ken, what was so distressing, it started to rain that day. Uh, <laughs> the minuses so outweighed the pluses. <laughs> it was like, well, got that block done. we like only one house. <laughs> and then we went, I, I, I want to say we did went to a Did you do all three of them on the block then? I did. <laughs> Uh, we closed it, I believe, it at IHOP. Don't quote me on that, but because there's somehow a pancake memory in there. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I've been reflecting upon this, uh, Ken, our, our naivete, the fact that the things that you and I, as very young uh, men, I was still a teen, you were barely out of your teens, uh, saw good in McGovern, the rest of the com- country abhorred. And I, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I laugh at it. I laugh at you. I laugh at me. But isn't there something scary about that? Uh, upon reflection, that the things that inspired us to go door knocking for this man and his movement are just incomprehensible to uh, most Americans, and they despised what we represent. I don't. It scares me. What about you? Well, you know, I guess we we always knew it was kind of a long shot, but the 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 thing that brought us together in this conversation is this idea that our opponents wanted 
to win, right? And that was, I have to say, this is the this is the the, the paragon of um, of naivete to, to to actually not understand that that's the way politics was already working, and you know we've we've both talked a little bit about this, and there have been a number of really interesting. Um, you know, L.A. Times columnist Mark Barabek, I think his name is, he did a thing about, uh, he put this into some very interesting perspective because he takes it back to Humphrey uh, in 68. And the, the, the outrage that the left saw when Humphrey was nominated in 1968, right? I mean, you, you remember that probably. You were younger, you're a little younger than I was, but, but I mean, it was, it was just a palpable feeling that this had been stolen. Of course, the, you know, the battle of Chicago was all over that idea that a guy like Hubert Humphrey could get nominated when he's just part of the problem. But what this columnist in the LA times points out, and I think it's really, it's really something for us to think about today is that there's now, now we look at this and we say, well, one of the effects of the McGovern reforms, which were enacted between 68 and 72, is that it turned out that it cut a lot of the party leaders out of the process and it brought in more women and youth and minorities, which we thought was great. But the majority of America just could not compute. And so it began, a, it, it kind of, in a way, began the process of sort of splitting us into two countries. I mean, I I, I don't think it's not, I don't agree that it was the match that lit the fire, but I think that it was one of the first great manifestations of it. And, and the right, and you and I have both spoken at long length about the admiration, the twisted admiration we have for the right and how they look at a 50 year timeline and we look at about a 50 day timeline. And, yeah. you know, they, mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the right was working on this in the sixties, in the fifties, they, they knew that they had to get the Supreme court and they knew that it was a long horizon, but they were going to survive. They were going to get it. And they did. And this was a, this was one of the stair steps to where we are today was this beginning of this realization that we cannot allow these loudmouth lefties and colored people and all these people that we don't know and we don't understand to have any more power than they have now and we have to we have to be careful at this point it's just more like we've just got to be cautious not to let these people have any more power but as they got more threatening over the years they got really we they got really cut out of the picture and this is where we are today so I guess the lesson to this is that what we're what we're going through today isn't new. It's yeah. just a kind of a, it's a manifestation of something of, of a giant dandelion that was growing in the lawn all these years and you know it's flowering now. Yeah. And in many ways when I uh, read uh, passages of uh, Pearlstein's book Nixonland which mm-hmm. is a fascinating mm-hmm. read uh, it, it's astounding to me uh, how my uh, Nixon doesn't look nearly as bad today as he did then. And um, 
I remember as a kid, my, I grew up in a family that despised Nixon and the Republicans, uh, New Deal Democrats. Mm -hmm, okay? mm -hmm. uh, and I think, to your point, it's just a testament to what the, the right has done uh, by pushing the center further and further to the right so that what is now a quote-unquote acceptable, politically acceptable, is absolutely uh, mind-boggling from a 1972 yeah. perspective, even with Richard yeah. Nixon yeah. in the White yeah. House. Yeah. I know. It's, it's something that uh, mind-boggling is the way to look at it. And, and there, is, there is, I think, some validity at this point to looking back at the McGovern Commission, which I idolized, I thought it was just an absolutely incredible accomplishment, that it actually did begin the process of slicing and dicing the population by giving, you know, it, it, this is an awkward thing to be talking about today, but by by bringing in women, by bringing in minorities, by bringing in younger people and making them a part of the political situation, it didn't actually... Um, enrich the stew, it just started more pots on the stove, each with their own little content. And we are, we are today so completely divided. I mean, we, we have almost nothing in common. And, and you know, I, I, I can't find anything that I agree with Donald Trump on. And that's not a, that's not a good thing. That's, that's not good for the body politic. He wouldn't find anything he could agree with me on either. Well, you probably, uh, if he was truthful, which is okay, well, there'd be uh, impossible for Donald Trump. Uh, he, if he were truthful, I would presume you'd have similar attitudes toward abortion. Oh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, his entire life was a pro-choice until suddenly realized uh, that he couldn't be pro-choice if he wanted to win the Republican right. nomination. So not only did he go overboard, uh, he nominated to the Supreme Court fanatics on this issue and so well, that's where we are today credit. but don't if you give could, credit for the people but, he nominated to the supreme court that was uh that was the organization that did that i'm sorry my mind just i just lost the name of it the who are the people that the the did this oh well no, he, yeah. they wrote the list for uh, of candidates and he just selected from the list uh but uh all right so now, here's another little interesting tidbit from 1972. By the way, just to your point, by 1976, the Dems had, quote unquote, learned a lesson of 72. Yes. Uh, they had nominated a centrist, uh, Jimmy Carter, who made a point of reaching out to Mayor Richard mm -hmm. J. Daley, then mm -hmm. the mayor of Chicago, who had been who had left. He walked out of the 1972 Democratic Convention because he was so outraged at the reforms uh, that you just alluded to. And Carter made a point of making sure that everybody knew how much he loved Richard J. Daley. All right. Uh, to malign McGovern, the Nixon forces said that the McGovern ticket represents, and they did alliteration because they were really in the alliteration, acid, abortion, and amnesty. And those are shorthand, acid, obviously, LSD, but it really means free dr drugs, uh, legalizing drugs. Abortion obviously means access to abortion for women. And amnesty had to do with the notion uh, that they should give amnesty to uh, draft dodgers who had moved to Canada rather than serve uh, in the army and get sent to Vietnam. I'm like, you know, time has proved McGovern right yeah. on this. Well, 
I mean, we're legalizing reefer all right. over the country, so that takes care of acid. Uh, in terms of abortion, I believe that if the Democrats win in uh, November, it's because the country will have said we want legalized abortion in this country, uh, at least in most instances. And then in terms of amnesty, even Trump denounces the <laughs> Vietnam War. So it's kind of funny, Ken. Well, I... George McGovern, <laughs> even if you take the most disparaging things Nixon could think and say about him, McGovern yeah, I don't was right. Uh, President Trump served in Vietnam, did he? I don't remember that he did. <laughs> uh, I think his oh, toe right. hurt. I think he had a, his owie. So he didn't have toe. He just uh, he was just medically unable to serve. Yeah. So yeah, I think we won the long term fight, uh, but somehow or other, they won the battle. Um, acid abortion and amnesty. So are you? More cynical and jaded, uh, knowing that Nixon and his henchmen wanted McGovern, the person <laughs> that you supported to win. Does that make you a more jaded, cynical person, less likely to support reformers and uh, idealists? I, you know, Ben, I managed to get all the way to this ripe old age without ever really thinking about the fact that Nixon was very happy about McGovern the nomination. I always thought that it was like it was a big problem for them, but I guess, you know, naivete knows no bounds or something. I don't know. Uh, well, I, I've uh, fought with it and wrestled with this, uh, Ken. Uh, and um, for most of my journalistic career here in Chicago, because generally I, people will tell me, and many times it's uh, other journalists telling me this, that I'm naive. Mm -hmm. You know, that I'm unduly idealistic, mm -hmm. that I don't get how the game right. is played. Uh, the most recent example of this is when we were at the hideout with McDumkey and Lori Lightfoot t told me, said everything she knew I would want to hear and I wouldn't mm -hmm. vote it for her. And and many people, including Mick, go, why would you believe <laughs> why, why would you believe her? And I'm like, I, I guess it's. I st I'm so idealistic and naive, Ken. I believe it's legit, despite all these years. You know what I mean? If someone says they're going to do something, I'm supposed to trust them. So is that completely out of your system? When you hear a politician make a promise, you maybe were at the hideout that night listening to Lori Lightfoot. So when you, were, when you hear politicians make promises in the city of Chicago, like, I'm going to hire more police, anything, hire more police officers or spend money that we use hiring police officers to fund mental health clinics, whatever. Do you just automatically assume that they're going to break those promises uh, once they're in office? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, I expect some of them, uh, you know, I, I understand that reality, reality uh, impinges upon these things and and that sometimes you just can't do the thing that you promised and some of that is what's happening right now with biden biden doesn't have the doesn't have the support in congress there are certain things and many things that he can't do that i think he would like to do i'm not sure that Lori lightfoot can use the same excuse that the city council won't give her the things she wants i mean she still pretty much has control over enough of the city council that she can get her own agenda but um I, I don't know. Things things do things do change when you get into office. Uh, things that seem very obvious to you don't seem as obvious when you see all the other mitigating circumstances that you have to deal with. So I'm always willing to cut politicians a break when they can't necessarily 
deliver on a promise that they made because the realities in that one year between they made when they made it and when they got in have often changed. And, you know, if you look at some of the, the realities in the police force, that would be a good example of things that are not quite the way they were a year ago. So I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't think it's fair to just say, well, you said you were going to do this and you didn't do it, so you're wrong. But what I do expect of my politicians is for them to give me a plausible and honest report on why things didn't work out the way they wanted and what they intend to do now that they haven't worked out. Are they going to are they going to accept the status quo and try to work with that status quo and improve it? Or are they going to continue the fight? And if they're going to continue the fight, how is that going to work out? So, you know, I it's, I guess my older self has a more kind of a nuanced view of, of what I expect politicians to deliver. Yeah, I, uh, I couldn't buy into what you just said. And that's usually uh, absent in Chicago politics, oh, to put it mildly. Sure. And that is this, like a, a, an honest, uh, plausible uh, explanation of why you did B mm-hmm. instead of A. Yeah. Do you follow and what I'm I, saying? Usually what I you get is... Continue on that ahead, for just yeah. a second. One of the real disappointments that I feel is that of all the mayors who've sat in that chair in my life, going all the way back to, you know, Richard J., um, Lori Lightfoot struck me as the one who would, who could and would be the most real and the most honest mayor who would who would do that, who would sit down with me on TV or, you know, through some media and tell me why this didn't work or tell me why she's changed her mind about this, because here's the new information that she received about that. And this is something that you all need to know, too. She, I thought, was someone who had the communicative skills and the power to be that kind of fireside chatty mayor, if if you're getting what I'm saying. And that's been, that's been a disappointment to me. I I haven't seen her do that. I've seen her getting angry instead. And that just, it doesn't make me angry. It makes me very disappointed. I see, I just see like really um, missed opportunities here, like one after another missed opportunity. Well, that's a very insightful point, and, and I think it links to one of my favorite themes, which I talk about all the time on this show, and it's the very Chicago uh, view of the world, is that any time a Chicago politician uh, has to retreat on any issue, it's framed as mm-hmm. a loss. Yeah. Uh, and this is such a Chicago mentality. It's just like it's like a really gangster mentality. It's, it's like... It, baked into our brains. So for instance, uh, there was a showdown vote uh, in the city council uh, today on a proposal having to do with uh, speeding tickets. Uh, And uh, Anthony Beal, the alderman of the ninth ward, wanted to lower the threshold or raise the threshold from six to 10 miles an hour over the speed limit before you got a ticket. Lori Lightfoot didn't want him to do that. Uh, She held out and held out and held out uh, on the matter until she finally got 26 votes, which is the the vote she needed to pass it without uh, having to either be the mm-hmm. tiebreaker in the case mm-hmm. of a 25 uh, vote or to um, have to veto it. And I just viewed that, uh, Ken, as 
getting to the heart of what you were saying is that there's no real honest discussions Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Chicago. It's like you win or you lost and I can't lose. So I'm going to win. And so she just (laughs) held that thing and held that thing, moved it to the rules committee, deferred and published. Finally, she wore down, uh, the others and uh what you and i won't know for many years or several years or whatever is that at the very moment that those votes were being held what we what you and i know is that the ig office the intergovernmental office was was in the back room putting aldermen up on the rack and arms behind their back and saying you (laughs) you are tampering with the prime forces you know and you will you will accept a five percent change in the allocation for your uh road resurfacing and you will like it (laughs) uh arms twisted in the back rooms yeah and then by the way i should point out that six aldermen somehow or other uh were unable to be there when the vote went down for one reason or another. That's a whole <laughs> classic thing. Well, I think I'll just hide out, <laughs> not take a stand. Uh, and people oppress me on this one. Ben, what would your stand be? How would you vote if you were there? Come on, Ben, huh? Huh? What would you do? You know? Uh, and uh, it, w- it would be a really tough one, uh, Ken, because on one hand, um, as a bicyclist, I'm like, I don't, I get scared. Yeah. You know, uh, with Speedy. On the other hand, uh, the way this red camera, or red light camera, whatever it is, uh, program has worked in the city of Chicago uh, is so obviously dysfunctional, corrupt, uh, and filled with just kinds of distortions. I could not. I, I would vote. I would vote with Beal just for that reason alone, uh, and probably would immediately get bounced out by my North Side mm-hmm. constituents. Yep. And, yeah. And you. Me How too. Would you have voted. You would have voted with. I Beale. think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. You wouldn't no. last long either, because you're on the north. Well, actually, maybe yeah, you but, would last yeah, a little longer. No, see, again, there we are again, Ben. It's a matter of how you do your job. I mean, yeah. I know it's really hard. Constituent management is incredibly difficult, and. 48% of the people who live in your ward will always hate you and everything <laughs> you do, and they'll yeah. put signs up in their windows saying, hey, sucks, or, you know, whatever it is, right? But it's your job. It's your job to be able to try to convince them that there's a reason for this. And, you know, yeah. I don't know. See, this is that this is that 1972 McGovern naivete coming out of me again, right? I do believe that you can reach people, and that you can <laughs> that you can hand them the truth, and many of them can can handle the truth. But yeah, well, in in this case, I don't think that happened. I think uh, it wasn't about convincing people of no. the, the truth. I think there was no. a lot of arm twisting going on in the back rooms. Uh, and they were employing tactics usually associated with Lyndon yeah. Baines Johnson, a completely different Democrat uh, than George Yeah, it was McGovern. ugly back there right. in that back room, in that room behind the city council today, I'll bet. <laughs> oh, it was some hard twisting. All right, so I'm going to now uh, close with a bit of my own naivete and share it with you, uh, get your thoughts on this one. Uh, 
This is one of my favorite topics. I will never tire of talking about this. Again, it relates back to the early 70s, folks. Yes, bear with me on this one. And I just recently wrote uh, about this as well. Uh, the 50th year anniversary was this year. Lots of 50s uh, this year, Ken, uh, for the Watergate break-in. And that was, of course, the break-in at the Watergate Hotel where henchmen uh, dispatched by Nixon's re-election committee uh, broke into the Democratic headquarters in the Watergate Hotel looking for whatever dirt they could find that they could use against the Democratic Party in the forthcoming election. And uh, they were caught uh, in the act of uh, <laughs> rifling through the Democrats' uh, files. So f funny to think of this old-fashioned break-in in the age of computer hacking, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, they were hauled before a judge, uh, and uh, one thing led to another, and it uh, Nixon ended up having to resign uh, because uh, it turned out that he was overseeing a dirty tricks operation pretty much out of the White House that was breaking and entering and bribing and taking illegal cash and doing all kinds of horrible things uh, that are against the law. Uh, and he was forced uh, to resign one step ahead of being uh, impeached, officially just kicked out of office. Look, the votes were not there for him. Radically different time than with Donald Trump and his impeachment. The part that gets me is the fact that the two crusading reporters who were breaking one story after another, did so much uh, good work to keep this in front of the American people so that it would eventually lead uh, to Nixon stepping down, were uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. And they were relying on an informant who they did not identify. Uh, and they called it, they gave him an a, a anonymous name, Deep Throat. They called him Deep Throat. And, and they wrote uh, about how uh, he would have these covert meetings in this underground parking garage with Bob Woodward. And he would like, they relate to Woodward, where do you have to go with the investigation? And in the movie, All the President's Men, which is based on their book, uh, Hal Holbrook plays the shadowy figure. And he's depicted as like a crusader for all that's good and right about America. We got to get America back on course. We have to get this corrupt president out of the White House. They kept that his identity a secret for about... 33 years, I want to say, and I think it was in 2005, right. the fam, yeah, they revealed in an article in Vanity Fair that was mm -hmm. Mark Felt, who was the number two man in the FBI, mm -hmm. ladies and gentlemen, second in command to J. Edgar Hoover, who is one of the most notorious, law-breaking, kind of demented, cro crooked cops, mm -hmm. if you will, one of the greatest in American history, and somehow or other, Woodward and Bernstein kept that information from the American public, even though it became clear that Mark Felt was releasing this information because he was mad at Nixon for not appointing him to be the FBI chair, the head of the FBI, when Hoover died. And so this was all an attempt to sort of twist Nixon's arm to getting him to appoint Mark Felt. Ken, I'm like... I'm sorry. This is not a clean, <laughs> this is not clean journalism, yeah. in my humble opinion. And me, as naive as they come, read the stories, read the book, saw the movie, and declared, I want to be a reporter. <laughs> yeah. Am I right to feel duped? It, am I right to feel, like, suckered? 
am I right to be calling for the Washington Post to come clean and just talk about the ethics of concealing for all these years the fact that J. Edgar Hoover's right-hand man was deep throat? I don't know. Your thoughts, Ken. Help me out here. You're our ethicist. As they say, the problem with you is that you think it's legit. (laughs) You're one of those people. You think it's legit. And see, I've been one of those all my life, too. And I'm actually not ashamed of it. I I feel like we need people who... believe it's legit because maybe we can steer things back onto that track. Not that they ever were on that track, but anyway, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it's so, it's so weird about him because, you know, I had completely forgotten until I read this morning that Ronald Reagan pardoned him in 1981. Do you remember that? That, I mean, he was, yeah. he was convicted yes. for, oh, it's a long story we won't get into, but but no, he was not a um, he was not a clean guy, and it, yeah. it, it's it. He's thought of as being this great American hero who helped rescue democracy, but apparently uh, that wasn't the case. So I don't know. Hey, can I ask you a question? Go. I I don't get to listen to every single minute of your show. And I have not heard you actually address this. So maybe I'm sure you've talked about this a lot, but was it, was it politically a good idea to dump all that money into the, into the campaign that supported Darren Bailey? Or do you think it's going to really backfire in some way? Maybe not even that Darren Bailey would win, but that it would have repercussions further down the road, like what we were talking about with the McGovern thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, so this is one of my, uh, obsessions. Uh, and I think about this, uh, even more than I talk about it. Uh, and I talk about it all the freaking time and not just on the show, but I talk about it. Uh, I, as you know, Ken, I, uh, quite the t- telephone talker. I get on a phone call with someone and it's an hour before you know it. So I have a lot, a lot of conversations. Uh, and uh, generally I'm all over the map on this one. Uh, it's a roll of the dice. I was just having a conversation. I can't remember who I was having a conversation with. I've had so many. Uh, and uh, it's pretty daring and bold for the Democrats to try something like this. Oh, it's Monroe Anderson. I had a conversation with Monroe Anderson. Uh, and uh, it's it's out there, tactics. It's like something Nixon did, and it would be beyond uh, the Democrats outside of Richard Daley's Democrat. This is the kind of thing Richard Daley would do all the time with, like, running Democrats as Republicans to take control of the Republican Party in a ward. And so the Republican ward committee would actually be a Democratic operative of Richard Daley. You know what I'm saying? So this is the kind of thing that Daley did uh, in this in the city of Chicago. But on this stage, when the stakes are so high, to allow uh, a, a ma- the maggiest MAGA man in the state of Illinois to be within one election of running the state. Uh, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, he, just a nutcase MAGA man, could be the governor of Pennsylvania. They did the same thing there. Cox, uh, who just won the Maryland primary, he's he was at the insurrection, okay? And he just won the primary there. I mean, there's no net. So I'm nervous Nelly with this. 
you know, as much as I thought uh, Richard Irvin was the phoniest candidate I've, <laughs> I've ever seen, the guy that Bailey beat, uh, I think, I don't know, maybe we would be, if he were our governor, or it would be a little less dangerous than with Darren Bailey calling the shot. So I'm nervous, Ken. Uh, I understand why they did it, I, I but I'm nervous. The, um, the, the wild card in this discussion is Irvin, who, if he did become governor, would probably be a kind of a, maybe a mediocre governor, but not a, not a devastating governor the way Darren Bailey would be. So it does kind of, it, it kind of tempers that argument a little bit about whether it was necessary to go nuclear this way. But I don't know. We just, we're just living in different times now. We're living in times when everything, the stakes are just absolutely red hot on everything that you encounter. And you sometimes you just, you, you just have to go to extremes. I mean, we've been driven to extremes. Well, and I'll just tell you what uh, Democratic operatives and Democratic politicians have told me. They said it, the poll numbers showed that uh, Bailey was more beatable than Irvin. The poll numbers showed that Darren Bailey's presence on the ticket would drag down the Republicans from top to bottom. And uh, the poll numbers showed that uh, Bailey's impact would have a big effect on uh, Supreme Court races, which as boring as the topic may be to people, is hugely important in the state of Illinois. We elect uh, Supreme Court justice to 10-year terms. And so who determines the laws in Illinois and ways? And if you want a MAGA Supreme Court or do you want a sane Supreme Court? So uh, these Democratic operatives, they go, Ben, you got to stop being chicken. And this is what we had to do because otherwise, uh, if uh, you have a relatively benign, and I have that in quote, Republican in there, maybe people will be more comfortable voting uh, MAGA. And he'll push the conversation even furthermore to the. So, you know what, Ken? I, I'm, my attitude is it's a scary time, and uh, we have to take action. My, this is me speaking, not you, but take action to protect our democracy. That's. You know, I, I do want to just, I know we're getting to the end here, but I, I really do want to take just a minute to tell you how much I admire and appreciate the fact that you guys are spending so much time talking about the Supreme Court. Because for most of our adult lives, the Illinois Supreme Court has just been a cipher. Yeah. It's just this democratic stronghold. You know immediately what any, I mean, you know, every ruling that they're, how they're going to come down all the time. So you just don't think about it. And yet now we realize what a thin reed that is and what a different state this would be if two or three of those seats changed hands. Absolutely. Oh my God. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, and I could talk on and on and I will. And for, I've already done it. Some shows I bring on experts and they explain it uh, in terms of abortion law, in terms of like compelling uh, women who come to this state uh, to uh, reveal whether they had an abortion, who the abortionist was, et cetera, and so forth. That could come down to a ruling by the state Supreme Court. That's just one instance yep. that's mo so yep. obvious to me. Uh, and then mm -hmm. there's just all the, uh, the instances having to do with collective bargaining rights, uh, yep. et cetera, and so forth. So, yeah, it is uh, a pivotal election, and the operatives go, Ben, 
Nobody's paying attention to that except for you and a few other nerds, but they're paying attention to the top of the ticket. And so that's yeah. how, if you have a MAGA nutcase at the top of the ticket, mm-hmm. it helps up and down the ticket. A guy who stands up after the shootings in Highland Park and says, well, you know, let's get let's get moving again or whatever it was he said. Yeah, so let's that, go back that, out and celebrate. Go back out yeah. and celebrate. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, wow. Uh, scary times. All right. We're going to end on that scary note. Ken Davis, thank you very much uh, for putting up with us and all the technical behind the scenes, which I won't reveal aspects of the Ben Jarofsky show. Hugely complicated operation. Uh, some... <laughs> Oh, he has your list. Okay. I Uh, I was going to do this for a whole other show, but uh, uh, I will. What's that? I found while I was cleaning off my desktop on my computer, I found a list from a show that I was on with you in whatever year that was that Lori Lightfoot was elected. And it's the list, (laughs) the running list of the candidates for mayor in the in. In the one that Mary that the Lightfoot was elected on, and um, I I know that you used to be able to you could you could recite them from memory, yeah. and you like the most bizarre memory in the <laughs> no, world. It's really weird. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you: Can how many of the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve? 13, there, I think there are fifteen people here who were who were field, official candidates for mayor. Um, Go. Oh my God. Uh, geez. All right. Uh, well, there was uh, Lori Lightfoot. Uh, wait, time out. Is this uh, after, this is the ultimate list after uh, Rom said he wasn't going to run, correct? Is that correct? Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, this is the Lori, okay, I do. Lori Lightfoot, uh, Tony Preckwinkle. Uh, and I could have done yeah, those two. Uh, Mara Enya. Uh, well, Troy was, at, he was out of the race uh, by then. Uh, Paul Vallis. Uh, Gary Chico, uh, Big Mac. How can I forget Big Mac McCarthy? Uh, from Willie Wilson, um, uh, oh, uh, State Representative Ford uh, was on that list. I'm doing, God, my memory can't is, believe uh, this. I know, I can't believe it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So I've done half. You say there's, oh my God. Then there was the kid. I didn't even know his name then. The kid from the 11th Ward. I we, I, Dan, I always stumble on his name. It's the kid literally from the 11th Ward. So I can't remember his name. I didn't know his name back then. So, uh, uh, but Kozlar. Yes, Kozlar. Very good. Yeah. Okay. How, how you get credit for that. Yeah. You knew who, you knew who <laughs> I knew okay. he was in the race. Uh, yeah. I said Gary Chico already. Uh, Oh, Bill Daly. How can I forget Billy Boy? Yeah. Come on, big fella. <laughs> Pete Cunningham, I apologize yeah. for momentarily blanking mm-hmm. on your candidate. <laughs> he was, he'd be good, Ben. He'd be good. Uh, that's my terrible Pete Cunningham imitation. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, ten out of 15 uh, ain't bad. Oh, um, how can I forget Neil Griffin? Man, that was my guy. Oh, uh, well, I would forget Neil Griffin. Uh, very good. And uh, uh, did J. Mal Green make the ticket, uh, or is he is he on that I list? He is not on this list. Okay, he had dropped out. Uh, well, I think he got kicked off. Ricky Hendon. Uh, yeah, Ricky <laughs> Hendon. Uh, uh, there was that great scene in um, in the Steve James documentary, uh, City So yeah. Real, where they were going. I thought they were yeah. going to start swinging at each other. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Susanna Mendoza. Uh, how can I forget you, Susanna? I apologize. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
uh, I can't even read, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Ah, oh, God, who am I forgetting? <laughs> All right, okay. let's, let's let's relieve your 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 pressure here. Um, Jeremiah Joyce. Oh, my God, Jeremiah Joyce, yes. Sorry, Jerry. And, um, Bob Fioretti, that's unforgivable, uh, unforgivable. You would not remember Bob. Uh, you know, uh, I do apologize, Bob. Bob's now running. I don't know if you saw this as a Republican. Did you see this uh, against Tony Craigwinkle? We have all lost our minds. Uh, this, <laughs> I forgive you, Bob, for this because um, you were so helpful to me in so many tip stories back in the day. So I have f- officially forgiven Bob <laughs> Fioretti. Uh, but yeah, wow, I forgot Bob Fioretti. Uh, Dorothy Brown. I forgot that she was in it, but I guess she was. So wait, that's 16 then. I don't know, but maybe my counting isn't yeah. too good. Two, six, eight, 10, 12, 14. I have 15, but uh, anyway, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Anyway, the point is you can still remember it after three years. Yeah, no, I'm really weird. I admit that all the time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, wow, that was that was tough. I'm going to have to go take a rest now because that was that was tapping parts of my brain I haven't used. And uh, I was very proud that last week Dennis gave me the spot quiz on the, the five Republican candidates in the gubernatorial uh, primary. I still, I had them now. I can't believe it. I never knew them. And you still remember. Six, six. Excuse me. Sorry, Max Solomon. I always forget you. You got 1% of the vote. Uh, all right. Ken Davis, thank you very much. That thank you. Curveball you threw me at the end was devious and diabolical, but uh, whatever. It's uh, it's nurturing my brain. So thank you very yeah. much. Uh, all all right. right. Talk to you soon. Take care. That's Thanks. great. Ken Davis. I'm Ben Drowski. Take care, everybody. How to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.